What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So you have information for me? Is that what your little note says? Yeah. Must be tough living your life according to a couple of scraps of paper. You mix your laundry list with your grocery list and you'll end up eating your underwear for breakfast. I guess that's why you have those freaky tattoos. That's Carrie Ann Moss with Guy Pierce in 2001's Memento, the film that, for many of us, was our introduction to director Christopher Nolan. Just think, if Nolan had made Memento only a couple years later, Leonard could have used an iPhone instead of all those tattoos and Polaroids. Imagine how many iPhones that guy would have lost, though. Tattoos, probably still his best bet, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way to go. It makes me think, Adam, those movie tattoos you and I have always meant to get from yeah. our top five list many years back. Now, in quarantine, we're going to do it Leonard style, right? We're going <laughs> to give them to ourselves. I like it. This week, we revisit Memento as we continue our chronological look back at Nolan's filmography, plus a review of the new Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always from director Eliza Hittman. All that and more. Have I told you about my condition? Well, well aware of your condition, Adam. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I don't want to generalize, Josh, but seriously, if you came of age with cell phones and smartphones everywhere, would you watch Memento as mostly the tragedy of a guy who lived just before the ubiquity of the iPhone? I mean, poor Leonard at one point discovers a supposed friend's true colors, and he just cannot find a pen to make the note for himself. It's pretty hilarious. That's a plot point hinges on the inability to find a pen. That's true. It does. This week, we're going to revisit Christopher Nolan's mind-bending second film. It's all part of our Nolan Oeuvre review, and we'll announce the winner of this year's Film Spotting Madness Tournament, the best of the 2010s in the finals. George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road going up against Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Voting was so close, we're going to call it and our third place winner live here as we tape, Josh. Very exciting. Can't wait to find out. First, though, we did want to acknowledge everyone out there who's listening and maybe doesn't have the luxury of sitting around holding up with a bunch of movies to watch. There are definitely listeners and their families out there who are working on the front lines, also providing essential services during this, what can be a really scary time um, for a lot of people. So thank you for what you do, those of you who are out there helping us in the work that you're doing. Now let's go ahead and pretend things are normal for a little bit this week and talk about a new release. Imagine that, Adam, a new release. We're going to review Eliza Hittman's Sundance hit, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Down beneath the ashes and stones. She's not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. Going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be on Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? La, 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 la. 
Last week, we gave away five codes via the Film Spotting Twitter account to watch Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always for free at home on demand. It opened on all the major players on April 3rd. One of the lucky winners, Ben Ashworth in Lombard, Illinois, wrote in to express his gratitude because with young children at home and babysitting fees, he usually has to wait for new films to come out on DVD or to make it to his local library in order to see them. He was not disappointed and, in fact, was quite moved by Eliza Hittman's third feature following 2013's It Felt Like Love and Beach Rats, which earned her the directing award at Sundance in 2017. Other films have impacted me by showing a single horrific act of sexual abuse, Ben wrote, but this film made a huge impression on me by depicting the near constant danger of sexual abuse against young women in normal day-to-day life. The young women are two rural Pennsylvania teens, Autumn, played by Sydney Flanagan, and her cousin Skylar, who is played by Talia Ryder. When Autumn confirms she is pregnant with a baby she doesn't want and is not ready for, the pair, with almost no money and even less street smarts, journey to New York City to seek an abortion. Unless you had a free code to use like Ben, Never Rarely Sometimes Always runs viewers a not-at-all insignificant 19.99 to rent. Though, depending on where you live, $20 isn't much more than you might pay for a typical movie ticket, and certainly less than the price of two movie tickets in Chicago if you were going with a friend or significant other. But the question of whether or not Never Rarely Sometimes Always is worth the financial cost doesn't concern me so much as whether it is worth, I suppose, the spiritual cost. Many of us are turning to television and movies now more than ever for the diversion they provide. And settling in for a movie about an unwanted pregnancy and abortion, where we will witness, as Ben put it, the near-constant danger of sexual abuse against young women, doesn't exactly sound entertaining. Even if that danger is often but not always intimated versus actually depicted, the experience of watching never rarely sometimes always is one fraught with dread and, aside from a few transcendent touches, hopelessness. Josh, do you foresee yourself over the next few months watching films this anxiety-inducing and tense in the specific way only a film that won a special jury award at this year's Sundance for neorealism could be? Never? Rarely? Sometimes? or always. Was it, for you, worth it? And if so, what were the transcendent touches that helped diminish the dread? Yeah, I'll um, play that game and and use one of the titles, uh, options, and say sometimes. Uh, you know, we've talked about how we've tried to avoid, at least I have, uh, contagion-themed movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then uh, we found ourselves watching 1938's Jezebel, not knowing it was about yellow fever for our Betty Davis marathon. So I think I have leaned towards lighter fare when I have the choice, but I don't plan to do that entirely. I don't, I, you're essentially asking, I think, here is never rarely, sometimes always a film spotting one-timer, uh, the way you and Sam have described films as ones you're glad you have seen but might not want to put yourself through the emotional experience. Again, I would say certainly a forebear and an influence likely on never rarely uh, is the Romanian drama four months, three weeks, two days. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is closer to a one-timer for me than never rarely Um, in my memory of it. I think it's, you know, it's a masterful film, um, but just completely harrowing and never rarely is harrowing as well in many of the ways you just described, but I can see myself visiting it revisiting it more quickly than four months for whatever that's worth. They, mm-hmm. they both feel like neo-realism um, to an extent. They have that in common. But this was a little bit different of an experience in terms of the intensity for me. And um, 
I'll explain why by answering your other question, the transcendent moment. There is a scene here that I've already watched twice because uh, it is the epitome of the movie. It is what, for me, the first hour of the movie was holding itself back, it felt like, so that this scene, an hour in, could hit me with the thud that it does. And it's essentially once they have made it, once Autumn and Skylar have made it all the way to New York City, um, they have gone to a Planned Parenthood clinic, first in Brooklyn, found out that the procedure she needs is not offered there. And so they're told, you're going to have to stay overnight and go to our Manhattan clinic. So they've had this long, sleepless night hanging out at a video arcade. Finally, they get to this other Planned Parenthood clinic where an intake interview takes place with a counselor. And so we have Sidney Flanagan as Autumn in this scene and Kelly Chapman as the counselor. From what I understand, Kelly Chapman, an actual counselor in real life who um, plays a counselor in this scene. And uh, this is essentially a long take, five minutes. The scene itself is longer than this and has cuts back and forth between the two of them. But at one crucial point, the camera rests on Sidney Flanagan's face as Autumn, does not cut for five minutes as she is asked to use those words from the title, Adam, when she's interviewed about her sexual relationships, her past sexual partners. And the questions are, has a partner ever refused to use protection? Another question, has a partner ever been violent? Very personal, traumatizing questions. And Autumn begins to slowly, imperceptibly break down as the weight of her sexual experience um, bears down on her. And we realize as viewers how much of her sexual experience has been out of her control and in the hands of other men uh, or others who have not treated her well. And the reason this hit me and took me by such surprise is because I found the first hour to be rather reserved of this film, Adam. Um, oh, it surprised me compared to what I saw in Beach Rats, Hitman's Beach Rats, which was very personal and tied to its main character, never rarely was distant for me and almost a procedural, almost clinical in mm -hmm. chronicling all the um, hurdles these girls faced in this journey, the practical things like buying tickets, sitting on a train. And I kept thinking, where is, where is the intimacy that was in Beach Rats? Well, Hitman was saving it. Flanagan was saving it. It comes out in full force in that interview scene. And then the movie for me, I don't want to say it gets better because I think it was purposeful to hold back. But from that point on, uh, the level of empathy that we feel for Autumn is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think it's maybe one reason why I, I was able to cling on to that. And it, this felt a little bit more like something I could see myself revisiting. Mm -hmm. Certainly as subtle as it is, it's the bravura cinematic moment in the film. And you're right. It opens the entire movie up, I think, emotionally as well. These are young women in Autumn and Skyler who are clearly not passive. We see all the actions that Autumn has to take just on her own to get to the points that she does in this movie. No one is here to help her, or she is at least not willing to ask anyone for help. And we learn enough about her family dynamic to probably agree with her that that could be the best approach. She has no real confidants or mentors in her life to fall back on. And so just this brave trip 
that the two teens make together shows how active they really are in their own lives. But we are usually watching them watch the world. They don't express themselves much and they certainly don't try or they don't willingly show vulnerability ever. And again, we know enough about their situation. Hitman shows us enough of their school life and their life at home to understand that that's that's really scary for anyone to do, to be vulnerable anyway, even if you have a really happy and functional home life. But in this scenario, too, it's that you don't know what response showing that vulnerability and emotion will lead to, right? It could just open up more pain. So when she's prompted with those questions, and she really does have to answer, it is Autumn finally revealing herself. And there's intimacy that's being exchanged, you're right, between her and that medical provider. There is Intimacy then finally being exchanged with her and us as viewers, and we learn from her answers not anything we probably couldn't already assume, but it's the active expression itself, I think, Josh. It's sort of her testimony and yes. her reckoning with trauma that she has up to this point clearly tried to deny and not confront in any way that makes it more powerful than any of the information that's being revealed at all. And when you do consider it in those terms, watching it in real time, in that unbroken take, and only on her face, it doesn't at all feel exploitative or like a cinematic trick. It actually feels like the only empathetic way to give her that freedom to finally express herself, to let Autumn have the journey we see her have just within that scene unbroken. Yeah, it's asking us to listen and just listen, not be distracted by anything else that might be going on filmmaking-wise. And Flanagan is a newcomer. I mean, th this is astonishing to me it is. that uh, she doesn't go for broke in that scene. The way we're describing it, maybe, you know, listeners who haven't seen it are imagining this, you know, tear-filled emotional scene. And really all it is, is it's, it's half a step further than the reserve she's held mm -hmm. all movie long, as you described. This is a girl who gives nothing away. Um, she's learned from her experience that there's risk in that, I think, is what we can surmise. And so all we get here is, you know, a tiny twitch in her face or even her, her lip just trembling trembling a little bit, and then her trying to keep that in. Um, she sniffs. It, it's really more her trying to push down those emotions and yes. not being able to any longer. And as we watch it, it feels like an unburdening. It, it feels like something that is about a very traumatic subject matter, but at the same time is freeing for her to be able to express to someone who is just listening, who is not there to judge, is there to, to, to hear what Autumn's experience has been up until this point. And so, um, yeah, it's a combination of just the patience on Hitman's part as director and Flanagan's astonishing ability to be, to be that subtle in performance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And while that scene is the key scene of the movie, I want to get to, I suppose, my second favorite moment. And the one that I do feel like is maybe the only truly hopeful moment in the film. It is one of those transcendental touches, and I'm being quite literal here in terms of that touch. As much empathy as we do see some of the medical professionals Autumn encounters give to her, this is fundamentally a story about 
these two teens who are not just friends, but they are related. They're cousins, Autumn and Skylar. That's another way it reminds me of the Romanian film you mentioned, four months, three weeks and two days, very much Mm -hmm. about this friendship, right? And it's about all the ways they're willing to make sacrifices for each other and the way then they acknowledge those sacrifices. And the most powerful single moment for me, Josh, is the one where I don't want to get too specific about it, except to say that it's an exchange and it is an actual exchange. There's a quid pro quo type transaction that's happening between Skylar and a boy and out of sight, Autumn just grabs her hand and yeah. just that touch of her hand and them clinging to each other that way. It's completely nonverbal, but it says, I know. And it says, I'm here for you as much as you are being here for me in this moment and on this entire journey that we're on. And there's another touch that actually precipitates even that touch and that exchange. And it's when Skylar gets up, leaves Autumn and goes to the bathroom and -hmm. Skylar goes into the bathroom to join her. And we see that Skylar is putting makeup on and she turns to Autumn and adds some to her exhausted face as well. And we don't fully know it yet, though. I think we can anticipate it that Skylar is completely just putting on a costume here in this moment. She's preparing for something. She's not just going to the bathroom to freshen up, but putting makeup on Autumn is just this little gift, right? It's just Mm -hmm. this little moment of grace. And again, it's completely nonverbal. And throughout the film, Hitman emphasizes these transactions and she emphasizes those touches as well. Yeah, that bathroom sequence, notably, it happens right after they have had a spat. They're they're sitting yeah. in the train station and things are <laughs> looking dire once again. And they've had really their first argument, which is completely understandable given the situation. And when they do reunite in the bathroom, also more nonverbal acting here, right? As you're saying, they don't really talk it out. They just look at each other and Autumn has looked increasingly haggard as these hours have gone by. She's really looking, you know, sickly at this point. And Skylar does that gesture of putting some makeup on her that does bring a little more color into her face. And they have that moment of reconciliation together. And it made me think of a very similar scene in Tangerine, the Sean Baker film, Adam. Do you remember that a bathroom reconciliation between uh, Cindy and Alexandra, where they too um, recover their relationship by putting makeup on each other and again, wordless, you know, does, doesn't need, nothing needs to be expressed. Um, and I think that just adds to the power of, of both this sequence and the one where they hold hands that you're talking about. I mean, these, these are two cousins, friends, they never really address verbally this situation much at all throughout this whole film. And it's believable to me, uh, you know, because you understand they have a closeness already. They don't need to. Um, Maybe part of them doesn't want to directly confront some things. I also like how Hitman takes time to show that they're still kids as well. I mentioned Mm -hmm. how they're stuck overnight with nowhere to go. So they go hang out at this video arcade. And at one point they're, you know, they're, they're doing a, playing a dance game and they're actually dancing and laughing together. And it's just a a nice moment of reminding us that, man, these are two 17 year olds, you know, that this is what they should be doing back home with friends rather than where they're stuck now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is, a pair of girls here who don't live in a world that allows them to actually fully express themselves and to understand that they have power and that they can speak for themselves. All they have are these actions. I think what they can do, as I said, to make sacrifices for each other and the world that they have 
to navigate. Going back to Ben Ashworth's original comment, it is pretty startling here. And this brings up those transactions and touches as well. When we see them at work at this grocery store and they have to hand over their money from the cash register, it's their job. They're just doing their job. And yet when they slide that pouch under the window, they get their manager slobbering all over their hands. And another moment later where they've met this boy on a bus. And if I remember right, there's a moment where he just touches Skylar on the shoulder. He's the one closest to her. And you see how she glances at that touch and has to yeah. navigate. She has to negotiate. Is this gentle? Is this harmless? Or is it seemingly gentle and harmless? And it's actually right. going to lead to something more sinister. She just doesn't know. They are making those calculations every moment of their lives. Another scene with him later where they're both starving. He buys some French fries and Skylar reaches for a fry. And there's a moment where you realize, oh, she's being like any of us where we're really hungry, but we don't have any money and someone else is eating. And gosh, I really wish I could take a fry. But it's more than that, too. You see it in the glances and the way Hitman cuts that scene together that the calculation she's making there is what debt am I accruing because I ate that fry or if mm. I eat more fries mm -hmm. or or are these fries actually free? And that's really harrowing to watch. Yeah. the That guy they meet on the bus and who then they reconnect with later in New York City, played by Theodore Pellerin. Uh, you're right. We never quite know what to make of him because we've come to understand that their lives uh, are always calculating. Are the men – is this man that I'm encountering – a predator? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, they, they have to start there. That, that's yes. the sad reality of their experience of life is when they encounter a new man, that is where they have to start. And so we're kept on our toes as well as the rela their relationship with him proceeds. Uh, can I throw out one other transcendent moment that, mm -hmm. um, that I think really makes this film – uh, richer than, you know, this completely depressing experience, it might sound as it comes when they are with that guy again later and singing karaoke. So it's the three of them. And at this point, Autumn is, you know, not feeling well at all, but she does get up to sing and it's Jerry and the Pacemakers. The song is Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. And it's a, you know, Again, context is everything. It's it's just a standard karaoke performance. You know, it's not like she suddenly turns into this uh, amazing singer or anything no. like that. But it has to do with the words of the song, right? And even that title speaks exactly to how we were describing Autumn before. Mm -hmm. Her whole life has been not letting anyone catch her crying. And she doesn't hear while singing either, right? She, she lets the song do it for her. That's exactly what she's been trying to prevent is, is someone to see her crying and accept when we see the hints of it in that interview scene. So that's just another moment that kind of elevated things. And then I also wanted to go all the way back to the beginning of the film. And I don't want it to sound like I'm writing off the first hour. It's just a very different filmmaking style. Um, but there is one tiny flourish uh, that made me think, uh, you know, okay, I can I can see where we're getting a little bit closer here. It's when Autumn is getting her initial sonogram uh, at a clinic in her mm -hmm. hometown. And the camera is on her and... We hear the heartbeat, right? And and the nurse points to the uh, the video and says something like, this is the most beautiful sound you'll ever hear, and wants her to actually look at the sonogram. And what does Autumn do? 
she instinctively turns her head she the turns other her way. Head. And the camera yes. just slides with her, exactly. right? Exactly. So and the subtly. camera, which has always been fairly reserved, fairly fixed, just kind of swings slowly with her face. Yes. And um, very tiny touch, but just one that that gives you that hint that, okay, we are, this movie is with her yes. in a way. And and that's that was the difference with Beach Rats, which I was able to catch up with and I really do encourage listeners to see. Um, similar in some ways about a teenager, in this case, um, a young Brooklyn guy struggling with his own sexuality, trying to figure that out. From moment one in Beach Rats, Hitman's camera is married to his glances and it's so immediate to his experience. So I was kind of expecting that and that's what took me aback when we had um, a young person who we were removed from for that first hour, except for that little camera flourish. And then, of course, what we get later, later in the film. Mm -hmm. The only slightly more ostentatious version of that move is in the subsequent clinic visit where I think they're doing yet another sonogram. She has to have a second one. And it's at this point, and I may be conflating this with another scene, but there's a moment where she's on the bed and she's clearly experiencing something that she would rather detach from, as you would expect, just like she did in that moment you described. And the camera just follows her eyes tilting up as yes. she looks up at the ceiling and up at those trees and leaves outside completely away from this space. And it is just a really subtle tilt there. And you talk about the the glances and we talk about the the sort of the gaze and the point of view of this film. I would love to see Beach Rats now, of course, having seen and really appreciated this film. But that's one where, as you've described it, it's about this guy's point of view. And this is clearly a woman, Hitman, making a movie, never, rarely, sometimes, always, about these two young women. And what she does capture in this really judicious use of cuts and camera moves that we've discussed is the constant uncertainty and fear on their faces and the way they see the world always through that lens. But she's equally adept at capturing the male point of view too, right? Like when they're bowling and we see that guy and we mm. see his look and it's only focused on her butt as she's yeah. bowling, right? And there are other examples of that as well. But there is this, this complication too to the fact that, you know, this boy from the bus that we're talking about here sort of vaguely, he's not a monster. The movie doesn't portray him that way. He's a boy who sees what he wants and he's more interested in himself and what he's after than these girls ultimately. Right. And Hitman understands, I'd love to get your perspective on this, Josh, that Skylar in this scenario, in all of these encounters with the boy, while she is ultimately far more focused and intent on her cousin, Autumn, and she understands what their ultimate goals and objectives are here. And she is on some level definitely afraid of what could happen with this guy. I think you see that spark, too, where she'd really like to go off with him. Right. She's a young teen who probably would actually yeah. rather than being caught up in this whole charade. She'd like to go to this concert that he's right. describing and have that carefree kind of life. And there may even be a part of her that is kind of attracted to him and is interested in having that sexual discovery. But it's all it's all fraught with this larger story that she's caught up in and that is obviously demanding way more of her attention. Yeah, there's definitely tension there at the beginning when they meet him again 
again in New York City, and he's saying, come on downtown, come to the show. Um, and Skylar's kind of like, we can't. And then she'll look over at Autumn, like, mm-hmm. unless you say we can. Yeah, give right? me permission. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah, it, it just it makes you sad for uh, a young woman like that who has to has those legitimate feelings and it, like h- how did how does she with her experience you know we're even if it's just working at that grocery store with a disgusting manager that affects and determines how she's going to interact with any man that she encounters and so how do you proceed with you know going on a date with someone if, mm-hmm. if that's been your experience I mean it's just it's one of the deep sadnesses that the movie does tap into absolutely there is one element we could get into in a little bit of spoiler talk. I'd love to throw a question at you, but we will save it for some spoiler talk at the very end of the show. So if you've seen the movie and do want to hear that, you can find it at the very end here of the episode. Never, rarely, sometimes, always is currently available to rent on demand. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or comment over on Facebook at filmspotting or on Twitter at filmspotting or at Lars on film. A reminder that even though many of the big titles we were expecting to see this spring are getting pushed back, new movies like Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always are getting released digitally, and there are lots of ways to see them, some ways that support your local art house. Over at Letterboxd, there is a list called Art House Online, films available via virtual screening room. As of this taping, Josh, there's 23 titles on there, and we've mentioned a couple of them on this show. We will link to that list in our show notes over at filmspotting.net if you are curious. And something else to put on your radar, South by Southwest is partnering with Amazon Prime to bring some version of their fest online. More details are coming, but the initial press release suggested that a 10-day virtual film fest could happen as early as later this month. You can find a link to more information about that as well in the notes to this show at filmspotting.net. One more related note, we want to bring attention to a charity that listeners might want to support. Probably some of you have seen this already on film Twitter. That's where I was alerted to it. But it's the Art House America campaign. This is co-sponsored by the Criterion Collection. I think they were actually one of the groups who who started a GoFundMe page. And I'll just read from the description there. More than 150 independent movie theaters across the United States have temporarily closed to slow the spread of COVID-19. The Art House America campaign aims to provide financial relief to struggling independent cinemas across the country so they can pay staff and their essential bills and survive until it is safe to reopen their doors. So we will also post a link to that GoFundMe page in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. I know we think of independent theaters in Chicago, like the Music Box, Adam, Mm -hmm. and I know we've heard from a listener in Boston about a theater there. So um, hugely important venues to the film scenes in so many cities across America that are being threatened by this loss of business. So if you have the ability and would like to reach out and support this campaign, again, we'll link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Up next, we're going to consider a movie that burst out of the art house to do big business in 2001, Memento. Our overview, Christopher Nolan, continues. Plus, we'll announce the champion of this year's Film Spotting Madness. Stay with us.
born out of my time, Miss Judith. I should have lived in the days when it counted to be a man the way I like to ride and the way I like to fight. What good's riding and fighting these days? What do they get you? You're making love to me, aren't you? I'm as good as some of them. You're listening to Film Spotting. And there you were listening to Her Majesty Betty Davis with Humphrey Bogart in a clip from 1939's Dark Victory, the third film in our Betty Davis marathon. We will talk about that movie next week. And we've been kicking around a few different top five ideas. And in fact, Josh, one we may still sit on for a future date because I love it, even if it seems daunting. One of the ideas was to basically try to think about Betty Davis in terms of an actor of this generation who could act opposite her and really do her justice or those pairings that we would really like to see. Was that your idea? Was that a listener? I can't remember. I think a listener came up with that somewhere. Uh, Twitter, it might have been because we did put the word out. And yeah. Uh, and then someone else pointed out might have been Sam, you know, maybe we need to see some more of Davis yet before we'd really be able to come up with those modern actors and actresses who who could hold their own against her. So, yeah, maybe it's something we do after we've wrapped up the marathon. Yeah, I'm going to give credit to where it's due. It turns out it was from One Strong Opinion, Chuck over in the Film Spotting Advisory Board. He there you did go. have three ideas. One of them was top five modern actors I'd like to see star opposite Betty Davis. So that is a possibility. We're going to do something maybe a little bit easier and maybe something a little bit more practical for next week. This was an idea of yours, Josh, and I'm a big fan. Yeah. Pretty simple. Top five things we've been streaming during quarantine. So I, I'm everyone's talking about how much they're watching, right? And I'm kind of in a weird position because things are busier than ever at the day job. Um, and it's more difficult to get those things done because we're all at home <laughs> right now. Um, but yet, the one thing that has changed for me is in the evening, um, the kids don't have lessons to get to. They mm-hmm. don't have activities that we have to be at. So that has opened up uh, this time. And because they can't go anywhere, we are all together. So we've been watching more stuff together than usual. Um, We have been able to do that, which I know a lot of other people are as well. So yeah, from time to time, we'll have listeners say, hey, are you keeping up with this show? Are you have you have you streamed this? And a lot of times we have to say no. We're just trying to keep up with putting out film spotting. But I think we both have found that uh, there has been some time to do some more of that. And I think we can come up probably with a list of five things we've been watching that we can talk about. Yeah, look forward to that next week. And if you want to send us any tips or make any recommendations that are worth sharing with our audience on that show, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file to that email or, of course, leave us a voicemail. The number is 312 312- Two six four zero seven four four. Every two weeks on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you will find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. Tasha, Scott, Keith, and Genevieve do a great job there, of course, and they're starting a new pairing that they're calling Josh Homesickness. Yeah. Just, just what we want to listen to. We've talked about how you and I are maybe avoiding some of yeah, these speaking themes of diversions. <laughs> the next picture show, they're doubling down on it. So if, if you want to look for that sort of stuff and you've been watching that sort of stuff, you will want to catch this episode. They're covering the new film, Swallow. It's the feature debut of Carlo Mirabella Davis about a newly pregnant housewife who becomes obsessed with an urge to swallow dangerous objects. So yeah, a little icky. And they're pairing it 
with Todd Haynes' 1995 film Safe with Julianne Moore, which obviously has parallels to the current situation. So yeah, Next Picture Show folks are, are digging in um, and investigating some of those sort of fears maybe we're, we're experiencing in real life, how they're echoed in films new and old. You can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show. They're put out every Tuesday at midnight. Find them wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more info at nextpictureshow.net. I would like to revisit the Haynes film and... I would, in theory, really like to see Swallow, Josh, and I'm not proud of it, but I'm just going to go ahead and admit my weakness. I saw a little description of the movie and saw an image from the film of the woman, the main character, knowing that she's pregnant and holding a thumbtack and just knowing that the suggestion is she really wants to swallow that thumbtack. And I was like, I'm out. You're out. I don't think I can do it. I get it. I don't know that I can do it, but that's why we have the next picture show. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! That may be the last time. You'll hear Gerard Butler on Film Spotting, <laughs> at least for this year, Josh, because we are wrapping up Film Spotting Madness, our annual bracket style tournament. 64 films this year from the 2010s. Only one can reign supreme. And I can't wait because we are finally going to find out which movie it is. The championship round Bong Joon Ho's Best Picture winning Parasite, which Sam and I had overall as the number 11 seed in the tournament going against George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, the number one overall seed. So the movie that Sam and myself, and I think even you having picked the master to win it all and been wrong, you had it defeating Mad Max Fury Road. So you felt like Fury Road was either the movie that was going to win it or should at least be the number two seed, right? Yeah, I, th- I think I had it in my final four. Sure. Yep. Okay. So I was pretty confident. We thought, Sam and myself, that it would be the film most likely to win this tournament. So we have... The consensus best film of 2015 in Fury Road against the consensus best film of last year in Parasite. Before we do the honors and announce the winner, a little bit of feedback here, Josh. This is from Jordan W. in Chicago. The last decade opened with the global economy limping out of the worst recession it had seen since the Great Depression. At its close 10 years later, it appears we're on the precipice of an even worse one. But at its core, the results will be the same. Profound inequality and the commodification of all of our most basic human needs. That is the story of the past decade, and no two movies from the decade tell it better than Parasite and Mad Max Fury Road. And while there are many outstanding films in this bracket, I couldn't be happier with the two finalists. So I voted for both. (laughs) That's actually impossible. There's no yeah, way they did that. I don't think you can do you that, can. Jordan. No, I mean, I'm sure our ironclad crowdsignal.com security system kept Jordan. <laughs> actually, you know what? I know how he did it. He just had to find a way to vote from two different IP addresses, which in this current time of quarantining, I don't know how he pulled off. Yeah, that, he's, he's really pulling a scam, isn't he? <laughs> but I love the way he described those two films and put them in perspective. And Jordan W. in Chicago is going to be our Film Spotting Madness copywriter moving forward. Jeremy Carrier wrote in, I had a feeling from round one it would come down to these two. Parasite and Fury Road have such huge across-the-board appeal. They were beloved by basically everybody from all taste ranges, from random Joe Sixpack to the film comment top 10 of the year. 
and they both had enough social relevance to appeal to the Academy, where they were both nominated for and won a bunch of Oscars, 10 nominations, 6 wins for Fury Road, 6 noms, 4 wins for Parasite. Either pick would be a great choice, but my heart is with Fury Road, a movie I still can't believe actually exists, at least Josh for the time being. Oh man, we'll see. We're going to find out soon enough. Isabel Bishop here. Come on guys, do the right thing. Best of 2019, Parasite, no doubt. Best of the entire decade? The answer is obvious. Mad Max Fury Road deserves this. Well, Raul Gomez Linza in Ecuador is afraid of that film spotting madness incinerator. He says, please don't take Parasite away from me. I've only had it for a year. This is true. Just imagine if it doesn't win. There there are probably some people who have yeah. only seen Parasite once. I know. There might be some people who haven't seen it yet, and we're just going to burn it down? Yeah. gone forever. Those are the rules. Oh, boy. Here's one more note from Taryn. I am throwing myself into the conflagration of madness like one of Immortan Joe's war boys. And I have only one thing to say as I cast my vote for Mad Max. Witness me. <laughs> Mitchell Bupre says, I predicted the final two correctly, but I think even I underestimated how much Parasite was going to dominate this thing. My initial prediction was Fury Road taking it, but I think I'm dead wrong now. And Josh... It's time to find out whether or not he is, in fact, wrong. I am bringing up the page. I am going to hit refresh on the voting. So exciting. Well over 3,200 votes in Holy cow. this poll to decide the Film Spotting Madness 2020 champion. I will not ask Sam to work in a drum roll here. Don't do it, Sam. Resist the urge. I click on results, and the winner is by a margin of 51 0.51%. So if you round up, we can call it 52. Okay. 48.49%, rounding down mm-hmm. to 48. We have the grand champion of Film Spotting Madness, Parasite. You're kidding me. Bong Joon Ho cow. takes the Oscar, and even more importantly, he takes the Film Spotting Madness. 2020 crown it looks like i have to do some very basic math here josh yeah what's the discrepancy how many votes do we got 99 oh my goodness 90 99 i don't know that's i mean it's close obviously but still that's that's convincing how do you feel about this i have i have mixed feelings i gotta say well i'm good with it because i had parasite as my number eight film of the decade and i think it belongs in that conversation and i do think that It's not just recency bias. We've touched on this a little bit. I don't think it's the case where the number one film of last year, let's say there was even a consensus film, but maybe not on the epic scale of Parasite, including winning Best Picture, just whatever a lot of us critics had in our top five or whatever. I don't think that's going to go far automatically in Film Spotting Madness. I really believe it's because of the quality of that film, Bong Joon-ho's craftsmanship and skill in making that movie and the way it did resonate with audiences. I'm going to go the other way on you. This doesn't win Best Picture. I don't know that it wins Madness. Really? I just, yeah. Maybe more people saw it because of that. Yeah. Maybe. It was, I mean, it legitimately, this is, this is why the Oscars, uh, and really, I'm not complaining here. I was on record when we did our post-Oscar show, thrilled that Parasite won for this very reason. This is why the Oscars matter. When they do award an unlikely film or filmmaker, because there's real power then. Um, you know, if if one of my favorite films gets shut out by the Oscars, who cares? I still love it. doesn't bother me. But if one of my favorite films gets awarded by the Oscars, I am excited because that filmmaker's empowered. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just I just got to believe, and I'm okay with it. I mean, yeah, I, w- I voted Fury Road. It's I thought it was the best film of the 2010s. Um, but yeah, Parasite, 
definitely a worthy representative. Yeah, I don't think anyone can call shenanigans on how madness turned out. That's my position anyway. Let's then determine the third place winner. We do give a third place prize, the bronze medal, I suppose. We know that the runner up, of course, was Mad Max Fury Road. So it came down to Jordan Peele's Get Out, our overall number 10 seed against David Fincher's The Social Network, which we had in the top four. And Josh, I hit refresh to find that the margin is just just a little bit tighter, 51.31% to 48.69. So 51 to 49, a difference of 83 votes. You are going to be so happy. Jordan Peele and Get Out takes third place. I do like that. That does make me happy. I had Get Out in my top 10 of the 2010s. Um, But I will say and confess this earlier, Social Network, one that I probably am underrating from Fincher. Been a long time since I've seen it. But yeah, this this makes me feel good, though, to see Get Out snag third place. Thus ends our three-year Best of the Decades project. We did the best of the 90s a couple of years ago, Fargo. Defeating Pulp Fiction, Best of the 2000s, There Will Be Blood over Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, another Coen Brothers film, finished third, No Country for Old Men, and that one, which I think there too, that was the number one overall seed. I think Pulp Fiction was the number one seed of the 90s, so the Blue Bloods not taking these tournaments as we saw again this year with Parasite defeating Mad Max Fury Road. All the results, all the brackets from all of our Film Spotting Madness tournaments is available over at filmspotting.net slash madness. Also very soon at filmspotting.net slash madness. More information about Madness 2021. Right now, we still haven't changed our minds. We're looking at comedies. Film Spotting Madness, you, the Film Spotting listener, will determine the funniest movie of all time. And that will include us providing a not-at-all shortlist to you in case there are films you have to catch up with. We'll probably give you at least 90 to 100 movies that will eventually be pared down to that final 64. Yeah, I can't wait to get a peek at that. That's going to be fun. I do have a quick question I'm going to throw out to the audience here. Would love any feedback. Feedback at filmspotting.net. While we are overjoyed with the participation we get in this annual project and over 3000 votes per round per poll is nothing at all to sneeze at. My question is why aren't we getting even more participation? We do have well more than 3000 people listening to each one of these episodes. We talk a lot about madness. I'm curious, Josh, if there's some listeners who they're just not that into it. They don't care about the fun and games. Just give us the hard stuff. Just give us the reviews. Just give us the top five lists. That's fine. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you're confused about when the polls start and stop. Maybe the webpage is hard to find. I don't know what it is. I'd love to see even more participation is the gist of what I'm getting at. Maybe we just have more Michael Phillips types in the audience than we think. You know, he he has no time, no time for madness at all. Thinks thinks it's completely ridiculous. So might be some people like that out there. (laughs) There could be. Let's go ahead then and take a look at how the bracket prediction contest shook out. We had 678 listeners submit brackets. Last week's leader, Eric Peterson, he did have Mad Max beating Parasite in the final, which means, Josh, the winner of the listener prediction bracket is Michael Clausen in Seattle. Congratulations to Michael. Congrats, Michael. Michael, you win. What does he win, Adam? Do you have any idea what we Michael don't know wins? Yet. No, we're just we're just calling oh, it a prize man. pack. Come on. <laughs> we're just calling you it a prize move pack. This top of your to-do list. Come on. Well, now that madness is complete, it will bump up to the top of my to-do Good. list. I'm probably gonna have to seek out some advice and suggestions from you and from Sam as well. Here's what I think I know. 
Michael's almost certainly going to get a film spotting t-shirt if he doesn't already yes. have one. And going back a marathon to our previous one, just before Betty Davis, we did Von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich. And somehow mm-hmm. over the years, I have procured two sets of the Criterion Collection, Dietrich Von Sternberg. Mm. So I'm going to give one of those away. Michael is going to be the beneficiary of that. And he's going to have for his very own, I think those well, six Von Sternberg Dietrich movies that were put out by Criterion. I like that idea, but it also brings up the question why this set wasn't offered to me earlier. Hmm. I, 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 I don't have yeah. a good answer. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe I guess we... because I knew that a listener at some point uh-huh. would be more deserving than you. Sure. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> what about our little bracket challenge? Here we go. Let's let's put you back in your place here. You, uh-huh. me, producer Sam, Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. It's not about who won. It is about who lost. We look at the numbers and the winner. <laughs> congratulations, Sam. You know what, Sam? You also get your very own film spotting t-shirt. Second place, <laughs> me. Third place, Mike Merrigan. But reclaiming his title, Josh, I think this is... The third time in four years you have lost Film Spotting Madness, the four times that we have done this little bracket mm-hmm. challenge amongst ourselves, you've lost it three out of four times. I lost it last year and had to pay up. You're going to have to pay up again this year. Yeah. You know, the, see, Adam, this is one of the things that comes with being a free thinker. Um, <laughs> when, when it's difficult, you know, when you're, when you're just worried about uh, your own opinions and, and how things are kind of striking you when you watch films and, uh-huh. and you can't quite get in the herd mentality, um, you tend to lose things mm. like this. So I've, I've had to sort of accept that and take these anti-prize packs that we've put together <laughs> from Adam Sandler Netflix offerings. I understand. Is there a new one? What What's going on on the Sandler front on it, Netflix? What do I have to watch? It does seem that there is a new one out. Sam has been doing some sleuthing. But before that, I would counter that there's another way to look at it, which is that you just don't know our audience as well as I do. Well, there's that possibility, um, but I still think, you know, it, it comes back to the, the independent mind uh, element of this. That's, of course. that's really what's let's, tripping me up. Let's yes. go with that, Josh. Because of that independent mind, the trouble it always gets you into yeah. with some yeah. of your opinions here, this is what you're going to have to suffer through. Apparently coming later this year, probably in September or October, it's not going to be pushed back because it's going to be on Netflix. The movie is called Hubie Halloween. Hubie Halloween. I've refused. I've refused to look this up because I don't think it exists. Oh, you don't? You think Sam made this up? Yeah, I think I think this is a joke. I mean, I would not put that by Sam at all. I know he dropped. I mean, I can read here. I'll read the the description. He just got me. He just got me to look foolish on air. But no, but no, Josh. The Google exists. The Google reveals (laughs) that the joke is on you. Uh, okay. So this isn't coming out. I mean, what if I want to knock this out and get it over with? Is it, he's got, it's he not puts out. out like four of these things a year. There's gotta, gotta be something else out right now. You gotta wait. On Netflix. Let me read see Read the description, here. Josh. You gotta read it. Oh, yeah. The description is good. Uh, despite his devotion to his hometown of Salem and its Halloween celebration, Hubie, uh, Dubois, Dubois, how are, <laughs> am, am I going to get a French accent here yes. from Sandler? He's a figure of mockery for kids and adults alike. But this year, something is going bump in the night, and it's up to Hubie to save Halloween. Now, that sounds is it great. Is going to be animated? 
oh, maybe it is animated. Maybe, right? Uh, or is he playing a grown-up child, as he often does? <laughs> oh, only I will know, because only I will watch it. So many questions yet to be answered by Hubie Halloween. And yes, Josh, you get to answer them. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who participated in Film Spotting Madness this year. If you need more madness in your life, more is happening over on the Film Spotting Patreon page. We have the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament. This is the 32 film bracket made up of films that were left out of madness proper. And I wanted to share this note from a listener we just got today, a family member over on Patreon named Matthew Walker, who said, I'd just like to say that I'm really enjoying getting these 10 a.m. Patreon notifications. Don't even have to look at my phone to know who it is, and it gives me a jolt of excitement each day. So every day at 10 for the past 20 days or so, I've been posting the latest matchup and only family members on that platform get to weigh in and decide who advances. When this show posts, we'll be down to the championship matchup. Our final four, as we sit right now, Josh, Call Me By Your Name, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Black Klansman, and Paddington 2. I love that grouping. I mean, you, you're just... You're all over the place with those four films and in all good directions. So, yeah, that's an exciting group. I think it is. And obviously, I love Black Klansman in my top 20 of the decade. Love Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as you do as well. And Call Me By Your Name is the movie that if we had opened Film Spotting Madness up just to one more film, doesn't necessarily mean it's the... 65th best film or it's the film that I felt was such an egregious oversight personally but it's the movie based on feedback and just based on its general acclaim it's the film I would have thrown in had there been one more slot so if it does end up winning and I'm gonna say that's a big if at this point because even if call me by your name gets past Paddington the bear which it's competing with right at this moment it's going to have to go up potentially against Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I don't think it's a given that another 2019 film could win a Film Spotting Madness tournament. And even there, I'll say it's because of the quality of that film and not because people just saw it. They're both just no. that good, Josh. No, <laughs> they're both fantastic films. But if we have the two winners, 2019 films, that confirms the recency bias theory for me. Nope, nope, don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to believe in the power of both of those films, but we'll see. Portrait of a Lady still has to get past Black Klansman to potentially eventually face Call Me By Your Name. If you want to participate in all of that silliness and potentially decide the winner of the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament, just go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash filmspotting. We offer you ad-free episodes there and early downloads, as well as a few other benefits, including probably the biggest one besides fit participation is the monthly bonus episodes. Yeah, we're about to record another one of those. This time, we're going to do some TV spotting. So Film Spotting family members at Patreon, they did vote for us to watch Alex Garland's Devs, which is free to Hulu subscribers, but it is on demand elsewhere. And it's really engrossing since we last mentioned this. I got a couple more episodes in the can. Can't wait to see where this goes. So it's Devs. We'll be talking about that soon. Is Sam going to join us for that one, Adam? Is. is that still the plan? He's Excellent. on board if he can make it through all the episodes he hasn't seen in time. Yeah. And a um, little advice there, Sam, don't save them for the night before because um, you can't the, cram you wanna, for this test. No, you can't cram. And you want to sit with each of these episodes a little bit, I would say. They, they deserve that time and that attention. So uh, 
Um, so if listeners want to go ahead and start watching devs, if you aren't already, um, we will have that April bonus show available fairly soon here. And if you want to play along with the fit as well, take advantage of all the benefits of being a patron. Go to patreon.com slash filmspotting. Yeah, I think April 20th right now is the date we plan to have that drop. Usually it's that third or fourth Monday of the month when we put out those bonus episodes. One more bit of Patreon housekeeping here. Got a great email today from a listener, Lisa, along with Chris. They're in Air, Massachusetts, and they write, I'm so thankful for all that Film Spotting is doing to keep us occupied with content via the regular podcast, social media, letterbox, Patreon, as well as entertaining us with all things Film Spotting Madness and Fit. One part of the current situation that I found fascinating is getting to peek inside the homes of our newscasters and entertainers, particularly getting to see what's on their bookshelves. Thank you for sharing the photos of your workspace as well. I have one pertinent question for you you which season of the wire do you think is best and i'll get to that in a second i also wanted to share photos of my office which is the complete opposite of the neat and orderly offices that i've been seeing i share this office with my boyfriend chris who is in the process of learning how to make stop motion shorts you can see a couple of his characters in the foreground but both of us are creative types which means our various projects tend to consume any and every room that we are working in so thank you to lisa and chris we appreciate that photo and the feedback there. And it is true that I offered a little bit of behind the scenes content in the past week or so, Josh, just to those family members. We had heard from a couple people wondering what it was like now, the recording setup, since we're not doing it in the same room, which, as we've noted before, is the case for every single episode we've recorded except for one 450 yeah. shows probably or more maybe. i think so yeah 500 shows probably at this point so we are getting used to a new setup listeners were curious what that setup was like and i thought you know what why not show that desk where i am recording this show as we literally speak and it turns out that that space is not only where i'm doing all my work these days but it is the film spotting screening room as well. It's where I watch all of my movies in addition to recording the show. And I threw in this week another little added bonus picture, which was I realized I needed coasters to protect my desk. I'm doing so much work here at my desk now that I didn't really do before. I thought I got to have something. And so I purchased a couple big Lebowski themed coasters with quotes from the dude on them. I'm very proud of them. So I say this all really just to give you a sense of some of the content you can get over on the Patreon page. And I mean, who doesn't want to see my office, Josh? Right now, you are thrilled. You're thrilled I, to look at those bookcases behind me. I'm losing track of our conversation because I, I'm just glare, looking behind trying yeah. to read all the titles. Yes. But it was fun to post that because it made me think about all the things on that bookcase that have been provided by listeners over the years. And there's a frame from Studio Ghibli of the movie Ponyo. There's an Escape from New York Snake Plissken figurine. There's an actual golden brick up in the corner that I'm pretty sure M. Robert Turnage sent me. Somehow he mailed me like five golden bricks. I don't think you've even ever seen those, <laughs> Josh. And no, we have not actually bestowed any of our winners with that hardware yet. Maybe someday we will. And even The Wire... Lisa mentions it, and I can't believe I'm going to call myself out here and embarrass myself, but I think a listener maybe seven or eight years ago actually sent me that box set of The Wire because they knew that I had to see it, and I didn't see it when it was on HBO, and I am ashamed to admit I've only been through one season. Wow, that is embarrassing. So well, that's my favorite got, season. You've got a... 
you got a couple days. We're doing our, you know, the things we're watching in quarantine. You can just watch all the other seasons in about five that's days. It. Okay. Okay. That's what I'll do in preparation you for go. our next show. But we may also see a gallery of photos like the one I shared and like Lisa and Chris shared over on our family page. So I encourage anyone to go ahead and send over a look at that space where you find yourself spending most of your time, especially if it's most of your movie time these days. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Now that Film Spotting Madness is done for another year, we do have to return to our regular film spotting poll questions. We look ahead a couple weeks to an 8 from 84 throwdown, Ghostbusters versus Gremlins. We did originally have this scheduled for early summer because, of course, Josh, we were going to pair it with the release of the new Ghostbusters film, Afterlife. But we did feel like we needed something a little more escapist and fun to balance out. Betty Davis suffering through various tragic fates and Christopher Nolan's existential thrillers. So we're going to talk about those films paired with our top five movie going experiences. If we can pull it off, it's a bit daunting right now for both of us to think about times that really stand out as unusual, magical from our lives going to the cinema. Yeah, and this is one Sam pitches, I think, every year at some point. He said, let's do this. Let's finally do this. And both of us have a similar response. A few immediately come to mind. But beyond that, it's going to take some sitting down and digging through the old memory recesses and and thinking about those from a lifetime, half, you know, 40-some years for both of us of Watch going it. to the movies. Which ones? Yeah, are you? Are we the same age yet? Or when do you catch up with me? <laughs> Not going to happen. Not until September, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, you know, we can, I think we can do it. I think we can come up with those. I do have like three right away, as I said, I know would be on that list, but getting those other two that deserve to be on there might take a little bit more thinking. I think we can do it though. Yeah. And maybe to jog our memories and to jog our listeners' memories, our poll question is, what is your favorite kind of movie going experience? Josh, the options are opening night, full house for a comedy, or how about opening night, full house for an action movie? Opening night, full house for a horror movie, or here's a different direction, alone on a weekday at my favorite art house. And of course, we will also offer the option other, if you choose other, detail that movie going experience that is the ideal one for you. So you can vote in that poll and leave us those comments at filmspotting.net. Do you have an answer, Josh? I'm torn right now. You know, the the antisocial side of me um, actually wants to vote with the art house alone at the art house and no distractions got the space to myself. Um, but man, right now, especially I am missing being in a theater of people laughing their asses off. Yeah. So I'm really torn right now between the comedy and the art house. It's kind of, it's the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sides of my brain Mm -hmm. are fighting each other pretty much. Yeah. The right answer is definitely opening night full house for a comedy. That's the right answer. That's what I want to say. But I know that the real answer is alone on a weekday at my favorite art house. I mean, I have been dubbed in the past art house Adam, so you have that. I love even the weekday component. I love that I may be kind of sneaking in a film that I probably shouldn't have the time to see, but I'm getting it done. And I do frankly love being alone at the theater. And in fact, the last movie I saw in a theater was Birds of Prey with Margot Robbie. That was the last film I saw before all of this really broke. And I saw it on a weekday, alone. Not an art house film. I was going to say, I don't think. But otherwise, check the box. Weekday afternoon, and I was all alone. Had the whole thing to myself, and it was glorious. 
So essentially, if you and I both showed up at an art house theater weekday and we saw each other, yeah, we, we would like sit mad. in opposite ends <laughs> of the totally. theater. We want to hear about your neuroses. Again, vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. This is Brett Merriman in Los Angeles. I remember 19 years ago going to the Sundance Film Festival, January of 2001, and seeing a little movie called Memento that completely blew me away then, and rewatching it uh, completely blows me away now. I could talk about this film for hours. I will not. Why is it one of the great neon noirs? Because I think it is. Um, he plays with structure d- differently than Tarantino does. He, I think he uses the mechanics of film itself, the unstoppable um, ordering of shots to create a feeling of noir. You're always looking forward and backwards in this movie. Um, you have anxiety for the future. You're trapped by a doomed past. I mean, that's noir. And neither Leonard nor the audience can ever escape it. My son is looking at me kind of funny. Hey, Riley, have I ever told you about Memento? Oh, well, go wash your hands. Remember Sammy Jenkins. Thank you, Brett. Good stuff there. And certainly the noir tradition is a useful lens, a, a crucial lens in a lot of ways through which to look at Memento. Uh, Memento debuted at the Venice Film Festival in September 2000, went on to play at the Toronto International Film Fest that same month, and then in January of 2001, it played Sundance. Opened in the U.S. a limited release at first in March, and at its widest release was on about 500 screens. So for a very small film, uh, made an impressive $25 million domestic, $40 million Worldwide got some Oscar attention, two nominations, Best Editing, which I want to talk about. Dottie Dorn got that nomination. And then Best Original Screenplay, a nomination that Nolan shared with his brother, Jonathan. Jonathan wrote the short story that Memento is based on. So that story, to remind those of you who haven't seen the film in a while or didn't get a chance to revisit it before this, Guy Pierce stars plays a man suffering from short-term memory loss who's trying to avenge his wife's murder. And to do that, he has a couple of Polaroids that hold some clues, as well as the tattoos pretty much covering his upper body. Those are also clues that he's left himself. And, you know, Nolan didn't think that was complicated enough, so he and his brother structure this in reverse chronological Mm -hmm. order. I want to start, Adam, uh, talking about Christopher Nolan's brother, Jonathan, and asking you a question related to something we talked about when we started our oeuvre review and talked about following and this idea that the twist, there were two twists in following and how we felt while they were clever and entertaining, maybe lacked that existential slash um, philosophical heft that some of Nolan's later films had. I think that heft is all over Memento. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is, I liked following quite a bit, but this is a huge leap watching them back to back. And I wonder if Jonathan Nolan, his younger brother, if he maybe unlocked Christopher Nolan here, if that's a way of looking at this film. Uh, quickly, Jonathan Nolan, he went on to co-write The Prestige, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and Interstellar with Christopher. And then on his own, he's been executive producer for two TV series, Person of Interest and Westworld. He directed a few episodes in each of those series. So yeah, going back to Memento, um, did he sort of find a way here in this material to provide that 
philosophical heft. Mm. Uh, think about think about this one element, Lenny. Guy Pierce's character talking about why getting vengeance matters, even if he forgets that he got that vengeance. And he says this, the world doesn't just disappear because you close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, just one thought that kind of makes you stop in your tracks and really rethink how you've yes. <laughs> thought about things like time <laughs> and vengeance and morality and reality. And then the brilliant thing about Memento is it doesn't just sit there and pontificate on it. It keeps moving and it goes moving and it moves backwards. And and you're, you know, and so then you're thrown into another sort of existential dilemma. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just thought bringing Jonathan in, whether, you know, this is something that uh, Nolan would have gotten to himself at some point, or is it something his brother kind of um, brought out in him? Well, first, two quick clarifications. He doesn't like to be called Lenny, Josh. His wife called him Lenny. So yes, call him that's Leonard. That's true. <laughs> and also, just to be really specific about it, even though I think all of our listeners understand, not just short-term memory loss, but the inability to create any new memories, right? That's really at the heart yeah. of his condition. And watching from this the film— point, From the point of the from attack, From the point of the attack, exactly. Yes. The last thing he remembers, the only thing he truly— remembers is that attack on his wife when his life changed forever. And I'll just say, this isn't even really a disclaimer, it's just a fact. I had so many pages of notes scribbled around in my notebook re-watching this film, and it was the first time I watched it since 2001. I'm trying to crack the code of this movie and looking for all the answers that I really felt way too much of a kinship with Leonard. And I finally just had to put the notebook down and I decided that, you know what? We're going to talk about it. We're going to do our best and we'll see what we make of it. And I think that your approach with Jonathan Nolan is interesting. I hadn't really thought about it at all. It wasn't something that I suppose mattered to me as I pondered this film, but I think I can fit it into some of my thoughts on the film, particularly if there's something that maybe Jonathan Nolan unlocked in him, even though there was already this element at play to an extent in following is that he gave him a story that was rooted in some familiar movie conventions that Nolan clearly likes to play with, mm-hmm. but it did not only hint at and more than hint at force you to sort of go down this, this rabbit hole of larger existential and philosophical questions, but he did it with a story that I think almost demands to be told and explored only cinematically. I think that's what matters most to Christopher Nolan. And I'll see if I can explain that a little bit better. I don't know if I can, but we heard in Brett's voicemail, he talked about the mechanics of film itself, ordering of shots to create a feeling and inceptions coming in this review where you have Cobb is a thief who casts characters and creates sets and scenarios. We've talked about that a little bit on the show in the past. And just like Cobb in following, who's a thief who finds characters and inserts himself into their sets and their circumstances. There is this meta aspect inherently to Nolan that has nothing to do with him drawing attention to the fact that we're watching a film or that it's being directed by him. That's not what he's interested in. But he is taking the tools and he's taking the basic cell structure, the DNA of cinema, light and shadow and time, 24 frames per second running through a projector, images and actions all being manipulated by someone through the camera moves and through edits. And he's matching that to material that 
similarly relies on the manipulation of time. So I think a more concise way of putting it would be that he uses film to tell stories about how film itself functions in talking about time and chronology, but also in the way so many of his films do deal with dreams and deal with memory as well. You can describe dreams and memories as they replay in your mind the same way you might describe a film. And so all the ways a linear film structure usually stabilizes a viewer, the cause and effect chain of events, you understand where you are, you understand how you got here, Memento is about a character completely destabilized Mm -hmm. where he's floating within this dream of a past present and potential future. And so Nolan just really brilliantly destabilizes us accordingly in a way, maybe no other movie prior has done. And it does put us in an interesting position where not only are we put in that headspace, that difficult, chaotic headspace, and we understand his predicament. But I think what I came to realize a little bit on this second viewing, Josh, is that once you get past that and you do get your bearings a little bit, you realize how much it actually allows you to empathize as well with Leonard's situation and his circumstances. And the fact that we start every scene just like him, asking those questions, that we hear him sometimes verbally ask, where am I? What's happening? Yeah. It's still a wonder. It's still a wonder almost 20 years later and on a second viewing to me. Yeah, that empathetic element is one thing I do want to talk about because that's another thing in following we thought was maybe lost a little bit. These guys were interesting, but were they real people? You know, did we feel for them in that sort of way? And I think this is a leap forward there as well, where you definitely have a human interest in Leonard. His grief is real. He talks about that moment where he wakes up in the morning and he thinks uh, his wife might still be there. He, you know, he touches um, the side of the bed, expecting her to be there, expecting to be warm, and she He's not, mm-hmm. and that touches with a common experience. I mean, my my grandfather, who's my grandmother, died about uh, two years ago now, and he will still talk about that. You know that as an older man in his nineties, he wakes up and forgets that she's gone mm-hmm. in the early moments, and that's a very human experience that is woven into this movie and gives a real feeling to it for Leonard. I think Guy Pierce's performance has a lot to do with that too, bringing us into it, um, and also the Sammy Jankis subplot, which we can get into. But I want to go back before we do that to your comment about all the notes you took. What's notable about that, and longtime listeners will know this, you usually don't take notes. Right. <laughs> you'll you'll often take a, a piece of paper from me and a pen, but there won't be much on there at the end of the movie. It's just not your style. And so I find it incredibly interesting that this is the movie you have more notes than you know what to do with. And it makes total sense to me. Why <laughs> Why does Memento appeal so much to someone like me and so much to someone like you, Adam? Well, yeah. I'm going to, the answer I think lies in a quote Leonard gives when he's describing his process. I'm disciplined and organized. Mm. I use habit and routine to make my life possible. Now, I'm probably 95% that guy. I'm going to guess you're 115% that guy. <laughs> and so there's there's something, correct me if I'm wrong in making those assumptions, but there's something about this 
organizational, I mean, this is, we do this show built on top five lists and themes and, and processes and, and organization yeah. and habits and routines. Um, and so when you see a movie, when that is at once being taken away from you, this goes to what you were just talking about, about the filmmaking process. What Nolan is doing here, he's undercutting all that stuff in a way that makes this a thriller and makes this destabilizing while at the same time as movie lovers who know how films work, we are simultaneously appreciating the superstructure, mm -hmm. the stitching yes. that is allowing us to be disoriented in an oriented way, if that makes sense. And that is the genius of Memento that I think if you're, if your particular um, personalities in ways that I think we both share yeah. is just going to blow your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of blowing your mind, I love the fact that you've got not only Carrie Ann Moss in this movie, but Joe Pantoliano, who I like both of them as performers. I think they're both very good here, but also just that they're in this movie at all, because this is a film that came out two years after The Matrix. And if you think about those movies as a pair, which I actually do, or at least I do now, having just rewatched this film, these are heady genre movies, right? Sci-fi and this neo-noir. But they actually raise really similar questions about human existence that at the time were groundbreaking for me. They were films that planted something in my brain about the human condition that I have never relinquished. And I watch Almost every movie I see still through this lens, even just in my everyday life, I take away aspects of these movies that have filtered into my subconscious. And there's a different Leonard line I'm going to give you where he says, we all lie to ourselves to be happy. And if you think about it, Leonard essentially takes the blue pill in this movie, right? That's what's revealed. The harsh truth of mm -hmm. reality is given to him. But yeah. unlike Neo and the others in The Matrix, he does what? Cypher does what Joe Pantoliano does in The Matrix. He effectively takes the blue pill to remain blissfully unaware and to allow himself to continue living this new version of a happy life. And this time that tattoo that's right there where he can see it most plainly, most visibly. Remember Sambi Jankis, the one that's right yeah. there by his thumb on his wrist. Of course, what he literally means by that is remember Sammy, remember that story. But of course, it's more than that because he remembers Sammy. Sammy is actually in his past. He doesn't need the tattoo to remind him of what happened with Sammy. That tattoo is there because it has broader implications. What he doesn't want to do is end up like Sammy. Remember how Sammy ends up, a man with no agency, no purpose whatsoever. And that relates to the line he says to the Jimmy Grant's character who says, what do you want? And he says, I want my life back. Literally, of course, on one level, he does. He wishes none of this had ever happened. But what I think he's really saying there is, I want a life back. I need a life that has purpose. I can't be Sammy. And that brings us full circle to your line. I need a life that relies on discipline and organization and habit and routine. I need drive. I'm going to give myself that drive. I'm not going to be Sammy Jenkins sitting at home watching TV commercials. There are moral and ethical compromises and questions that come with that, that he has chosen, I suppose, his answer to, but he has definitely decided that there has to be a path and a purpose to his life in order to go on. And by choosing to deceive himself, by choosing not to face the harsh truth, 
the movie makes us face a couple of harsh truths, I think. And, and one of them is this idea that memories, even for those of us who are healthy in terms of memory, aren't what we like to think of them as, no. right? You, you're, you think of memories as those are the facts. More than that, they're my facts. They're my very personal facts I have witnessed, I can attest to. And Memento makes us face the harsh truth that, you know, they're just interpretations. They're interpretations of our experiences. Um, and, and, you know, like you hear about conflicting police reports of, you know, two mm-hmm. eyewitnesses to the same scene that speak to this. Uh, and, and other psychological studies where we do distort what we've experienced in the way that we want to remember it. And and that's just something I think we all know. But when you watch something like Memento, where it's put in this context and made this stark, um, it, it kind of makes us face it in a in a different way. And yeah, Carrie Ann Moss being in The Matrix just, what, like a, a year or two before mm-hmm. is really remarkable. Um, looking forward, it, it reminds me, she's obviously been working since, but nothing really quite as resonant as either of these two films. So I'm looking forward to seeing her in the fourth Matrix film. If we eventually get that. I love as Natalie, this character, how unapologetic she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's a word I used to describe Betty Davis in Of Human Bondage. And I think we get a little bit of that here. Even before we realize she's using Leonard, um, there's still this fierceness to her um, that I appreciated. And there's a you know another, speaking of the humanity in this movie, so many layers of emotion in that one tentative kiss that she and Leonard share mm-hmm. because there is betrayal going on there. There's a little confusion, but there's also some real longing yeah. in it. You can sense. I think for um, sure. Because these are two people who have lost people, right? Yes. Uh, and then Moss gets that great moment where she gets to act while she's acting. You know, you get you get a, a character playing a part when she yes. comes back in the house after Leonard has hit her and she sits in the car. I mean, that's one of the scary that sequence is where it makes it so palpable the condition he's in. Yes. Because for some reason, um, the edits to him waking up again. Those are movie conventions we're familiar with, right? Like, okay, he forgets. I understand. We're restarting. But to see it happen in real time where the camera looks at her sitting in the car, counting down till she knows his memory is going to reset, and then calmly coming to the door as if she just arrived. I mean, that's just a great little bit because the acting is so good there, but also the terror of realizing this is how it really happens to Leonard. Yeah. I love that moment. I love that you articulated that moment because I don't know that I had a firm handle on why it was so effective. I just know that you're 100% right that in terms of just pure thrilling moments in the movie, that cut to her sneering at him from her driver's seat, knowing what she's about to do to him, it's electrifying. Yeah, chilling, chilling. It is. And then another one like that, which uh, you know I had forgotten until the chase was on, and I think it was pretty common in the trailer too, is the, I think it starts with... Um, why am I chasing this guy? And then a second later, oh, he's chasing me. Or Love maybe it. it's vice versa. But that's just another great in-the-moment uh, way of putting us in Leonard's head, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely a great joke in the film. And it probably made me laugh back in 2001. It definitely made me laugh this time, too. And, of course, this being this oeuvre view, we are coming at these films considering how each film before it or set of films informs it. And beyond some of the things we've already touched on earlier in the discussion, just the fact that you've got a man and a woman here double-crossing Leonard, just like we had in Following, right? Two people that he thinks might be on his side, but ultimately are working against him. The whole object aspect to this film, 
right? In terms of what what do these objects that people have or hang on to tell us about them? And there was that whole sequence I'd completely forgotten about with the prostitute in this movie and the props, right? He he effectively buys props that he knows he can convince himself, I suppose, that belong to his wife, and then he disposes of them. But he goes through this whole charade with those objects. So that was another thing that tied back to following, and you may have a few more items on your list. But also, like any sacred cow we do, or with our 8 from 84 series, if this is the first time you're seeing these movies in a long time, it's always interesting to consider what we maybe didn't notice or what we didn't put emphasis on in that first viewing and what was different then about this experience. And I had completely forgotten Josh. And I don't know if my eyes were perceptive enough back in 2001 to catch it. It is very subtle, even though it sounds like it shouldn't be. I had forgotten completely about the moment where the black and white and the color timelines actually do intersect Mm. with each other near the end of this film, right? Where we actually see the color change. But beyond that and getting to some of these other points we're talking about, I had forgotten or decided to overlook how much of a sympathetic figure in some ways Natalie really was. You're right. Mm. She's completely unapologetic, and I like that about her as a movie character. And there's no doubt that she completely uses Leonard. But there are some of these other touches that suggest an inner life and maybe, as you said, some longing to her. And we do accept that she didn't plan any of this. When you do finally think about this movie and you process it in terms of an actual chronology, the first thing that happens at the beginning of this film is her boyfriend being killed mm-hmm. by Leonard. And the next thing that happens is the guy who killed her boyfriend driving up in his car, wearing his suit and pulling up to the bar. Imagine being her in that situation. And there's a lot more we can unpack there. But this is a case where even though, as you said, there's a key moment where she lays out what she's going to use him for and she has her own personal reasons to do it. It's also driven by her personal animosity to the guy who she knows did kill her boyfriend, even if maybe someone else was pulling some of the strings. There's a hatred for him as sure. well. And so that was that was surprising to me to see her not just as what I thought was a traditional kind of femme fatale who's there only to drive his downfall, but actually, in a lot of ways, I think she's more sympathetic than the hero is. I've lost somebody too. I'm sorry. His name was Jimmy. What happened to him? He went to meet somebody. He never came back. Who do you go to meet? guy called Teddy. What do the police think? They don't look too hard for guys like Jimmy. When you find this guy, this John G, what are you going to do? I'm going to kill him. Maybe I can help you find him. Well, it makes me think we you talked about the chronological cut of following that's out there. Um, we could it'd be great to have a Natalie cut of Memento, right? I mean, I know you would you yeah. wouldn't have the memory issues, but there is definitely um, a compelling story there that we get a good sense of in the performance and in in the sequences that Carrie Ann Moss is involved in. Uh, I was the thing maybe that I noticed, I guess, and I think this just comes with you know another what two decades of film watching or so is the editing is just, you know, I've, I've gotten to 
learn how to look more closely at what the editing is doing and mentioned at the top Dottie Doran Oscar nominated for the work here. There's just little flickers here and there when Leonard references my wife fairly early on, we get a quick shot of her eye opening and closing beneath that shower curtain, a Mm -hmm. haunting, haunting image. Um, And later on with the Sammy Jenkins uh, storyline, when that's starting to sink into us, the, the conclusive element is that quick flick of a shot where Lenny, we see Lenny sitting in Sammy's car, yes. right? It's like half a second, but it's, it, it's, and this is where Nolan is like, or is it in the wheelchair? Waiting. I think it's in the wheelchair. Is it the wheelchair? Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. But. It, it, it's just, it's so quick and it's almost where Nolan is, is like, okay, you've probably caught up to me now. So I'm going to give you a little reward, right. you know, and just like confirm, um, what you're probably thinking. And then this is more towards the end, but when Leonard does kill Jimmy, that sequence is match cut with scenes of Leonard's wife, uh, played by, I think it's Yoria Fox. Um, he's looking out the window of the abandoned building where he's waiting for Jimmy to come. And we get these match cuts of her looking out the window of their house. And this, again, it brings back that hum- human element, the humanity of this, um, ties us. It's, it's not just, you know, a noir killing we're going to see, but we understand the psychological and emotional, um, building blocks that has brought to that moment, those edits, yes. bringing back that into the final scene is just so crucial. Um, so I, I want to ask you a question though. Um, this was a great experience, a great revisit. Was there any point, however, where clue fatigue began to set in where, as I mentioned, we are trying to keep up with this movie and that's part of the thrill, but I did have a moment. It might've been the sequence with, um, around the time of the prostitute where it was just becoming, um, that's the only way I can describe it. Kind of like, I don't need any more clues. Let me work with what you've already given me a little bit. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I don't know that I felt it as much as you, but I was very aware on this rewatch anyway of how many clues, as confounding as the movie ultimately can be and as provocative as it is, as much as there is unanswered, there are so many clues to unraveling it that Nolan gives you along the way, but you would only really know that on multiple rewatches because on that first watch, your head is spinning so much. But when you see things like speaking of the editing, you see a flash near the end to Leonard, I think in bed with his wife, but now he does have that tattoo over his heart that says, I've done it. You've got little things like that, that clue Mm -hmm. you in even Bert, the guy who is behind the desk at the discount in early in the movie. He says that must suck. It's all backwards. Like maybe you got an idea about what you want to do next, but you don't remember what you just did. I mean, he's giving you the structure of the film in some of the lines that the characters say. And Teddy, the Paneliano character, really does lay out some of the larger themes of the movie I was touching on in terms of the subjectivity of your experiences and choosing your own destiny and denying things and rationalizing in order to be happy. That was way more present in the script than I'd remembered it from 2001, which might be a little bit different from some of the clues you're talking about and what you felt fatigued by. So I have to, before we wrap up, um, note that, because now I'm looking for it, of course, I mentioned how in the basement bar and following, I I saw those doors that had the porthole windows Mm -hmm. and something about them screamed Nolan. There's, it's almost the exact same door in that abandoned building where Leonard kills Jimmy at the end. Really? I noticed in the background. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be looking for those as, as the Uber view continues. Yeah, as you should. I wonder if we will see them make future appearances. I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on in terms of the new experience this time, 
even more than recognizing Natalie as a tragic figure. I also do see Leonard as even more complicated and tragic. Obviously, you can't deny the people he's willing to hurt and those moral and ethical compromises that he has been willing to make, not just in the name of revenge, but for him to have this life of purpose. But you really do tap into, I think you mentioned this line earlier, I tapped into more this time, Josh, the fact, the real weight of the fact that he starts every day with the last thing he remembers being his wife. And not just starting your day. It's not just when you wake up. It's whenever you come out of this sort of spell you've been in where you are processing what you're doing, however many minutes that is, 5, 10, 15, you're back to the reality of that brutal act that occurred against your wife. So that's a horrible place to be. And when he has that sequence where he articulates that pain and he says that he doesn't even know how long she's been gone. It's Mm. like I've woken up in bed and she's not here. And the way that ends, how can I heal? How am I supposed to heal if I can't feel time? That is a true, almost sci-fi like Mm -hmm. character dilemma, right? To be in a situation where you can't process time because time truly is not to be a hallmark card it truly is the only thing that can get you past grief it's the only way you can get over anything that traumatic or sad you may never truly get over it but the only way you can go on is to process it through time and he can't ever do that and as much as i understood that we're supposed to see leonard as a bad person who does some really bad things and he doesn't even fully want to come to terms with that himself. This is why Mm -hmm. he sets himself on this path where he can live with the blue pill existence. I suppose I understand what's driving that. And I do empathize with what's driving that. Well, and the tragedy of his choice at the end, the reveal at the end is that it has this decision to continue to trick himself into pursuing revenge has not provided any sort of closure or healing. No. Uh, and and yet, that's something he does not learn. Um, and he chooses Correct. to re-experience it. I don't know what other route he would have, what sort of healing he could pursue um, if he instead chose to write himself tattoos, notes about the, the one you mentioned, you've done it, you know, is is a different route. It's a different path he could have taken. Um, but that's not his choice at the end. And that makes that's what makes him ultimately a tragic figure is he is still choosing this path that is going to repeat the pain. That's it. It's not going to, it's not going to help. So I do have a few final little mysteries that remain for me, and I'm not necessarily expecting you to illuminate me, but I do want to throw them out to the audience. And obviously we can have a larger discussion about this movie and some of these questions, but this one may be not so much a question as much as a little tidbit I loved. The way in the flashbacks we see Mrs. Jenkins when she makes that decision in his memory, in Leonard's version of events, to test her husband, Sammy, played by Stephen Tobolowsky, she does it by telling him that it's time for her insulin shot, Mm -hmm. suggesting that it's been some passage of time between the last shot. And she actually does rewind her watch every time. Yeah. She rewinds the watch almost like Nolan is rewinding the watch on this entire film. She doesn't have to. Does she? Is there a reason why well, she has to do that? She She's not going to trick him. He doesn't look at the watch, does he? And no, check the I, time? Yeah, I think it's just a, a flourish to emphasize what's happening for the viewer. But right. the, the coverage is that in case he looks, I'll, I'll just say 
those are two great performances. Tobolowski, you mentioned, and Harriet Sansom Harris as mm-hmm. Sammy Jenkins's wife that, again, bring an element of humanity into the movie that that really does a lot. It's very important. It pays off when we understand that they're stand-ins for Leonard and his wife, right? Because yeah. they've we've come to care about them, and all of that care gets transferred to Leonard when we get the reveal. Yeah, and depending on your reading of the film, there's a possibility that they are actually not just stand-ins, metaphorically. They no, might actually I mean. be. Right. I mean, it, yeah, there's yeah. different ways to, to come at it. Maybe this is where my head was exploding, but I swear if you go back, Josh, and look at the scene where Natalie tells Leonard that she lost somebody too, he looks at a picture of her and Jimmy. And then after they've, I think, slept together, he comes out to the room on his own and he's looking through some things and he looks at that picture again And I swear in the first cut of the picture we see in this new sequence, Jimmy does not have a goatee like he did in the first one. And then when he looks at the picture again, there's a goatee there. Okay, so I'm losing my mind, but I want to know what's up with Jimmy's goatee. There's also there's I'm getting crazy, aren't I? Uh, That's a little too deep for me. But go ahead. What's your other one? When Leonard goes downstairs, this is early in the film, but in the actual chronology would be late in the film. It's right before he goes to meet Teddy to take him to the warehouse. He's kind of in a rush. He's definitely frazzled. He comes out of his motel room and he comes downstairs. And just as he's about to walk into the lobby to talk to Bert, Mm -hmm. we see Guy Pierce stop, catch his breath, kind of get his body in a certain physical position. And then he walks through the door slowly. It's almost as if he's putting himself into character there Hmm. in the moment as if Leonard is putting himself into character and I haven't been able to figure out yet why he would need to do that my last two and these really get at bigger questions about this film is to ponder why does Teddy even tell Leonard why does he tell him the truth that prompts him to kill him at the end if he knows what Leonard is capable of and there's a suggestion that he really does because they've done this before why does he even open that possibility right by pushing Leonard to that level. Yeah, the Teddy character at some point I, I think does become more about function for this idea to work than, you know, practicality if it were actually happening in the real world. I, I agree there's probably some hiccups there. So then the real mind bender is what happens now? What happens now? Where does Memento sure. go chronologically after he has killed Teddy slash John G? We could presume because There are suggestions that he's done this before, that this is what he always does, that a cycle will continue. Like, even if you look at the tattoo, and Teddy says this, but if you look at the tattoo where he has John G, and then there's another tattoo below it that clearly came at a different time and doesn't look as good, that says, or James, (laughs) you know, he's he's just going to keep adding J's until— What he's done, what he's done is he's provided a path for this to continue forever, unless he encounters someone— who genuinely will help him. But as long as he, you know, he has this path set for himself and he encounters someone who's going to manipulate him, it'll continue forever. See, now that um, Josh almost strikes me as a generous reading of the film that I don't know that I subscribe to, which is I don't think it matters who's there to help him or double cross him or not. He is always going to pick the path that leads to a life where he's not Sammy Jenkins. So he is the one that's always going to manipulate a situation until he 
gets what he wants, which is to continue this. And so right. if you look at it that way, then the reason I'm asking the question is the license plate that belongs to Teddy and those facts that he gave him to lead him right to John G. Now that he's killed this John G, even if there are others out there that he will be able to conjure up and seek out and get his revenge, it's going to be a lot harder for him, isn't it? I mean, he kind of put himself on this path to find Teddy and the movie ends with him killing him. So where does it go? Well, yeah, that's, but that's what I mean. The discrepancies in his clues allow for him to invent. And you wonder at some point in his consciousness, somewhere down below, he just wants it to keep going. Yes. Right. So, yes. so there's always, it's, it's a, it's the conspiracy mindset. You, you, you know, if you have that sort of mindset, you can always invent a new path to keep you going the direction you want to go. Yes. And the reason I say, if he encounters someone who, who, would not manipulate him, but care for his mental well-being. Um, that's I only say it's a possibility because we haven't seen that fail yet. We've only seen him encounter people who are going to use him for their own purposes. So, um, I have w- one logistical question to ask you. Um, it's the only open question, and I'm not trying to trick the film up because I I don't like to play those games with movies. This thing works as beautifully as it needs to. But I did wonder how does he remember he even has those polaroids because. If he's supposed to wake up, not know anything except for the incident, mm-hmm. he he will all he'll often go for the Polaroids to orient himself, and so I'm just wondering if I missed something where he, or and maybe it's just a shortcut. You know, it's a, it's a storytelling shortcut because otherwise he would what? He'd be dazed. He'd notice a tattoo. He'd look at other tattoos. He'd go to the mirror, and rather than have us go through that whole process every time, you know. The Nolans have him grab the Polaroids, look at them and start the path, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the only potential answer is that he knows what condition he suffers from. And so knowing that by habit, and this opens up another whole line of questioning with this film, because that dovetails with Sammy and what he could or couldn't learn from from habit Mm -hmm. and ritual the way Leonard does. Right. That's what distinguishes him. One of the habits he's picked up is he knows to look around him and look in his pockets immediately. Right. Yeah. To to find anything. Right. To find anything that might orient him whatsoever. But there's no doubt there are a ton of those little questions that this movie makes you ask and will continue to make us ask, I think. So I love the fact that we got a chance to revisit Memento as part of this OOV review. Next up is 2002's Insomnia, a remake of the 1997 Norwegian thriller starring Al Pacino and Robin Williams. And I mentioned it last week. When we were going through our ranking, it's the only Nolan film I suppose I feel like I don't like based on one viewing. It was a disappointment for me, so I can't wait to watch now in this order. Well, and fascinating after Memento, too, because my memory of it is being fairly conventional in terms of narrative um, and filmmaking. So it'll be interesting to revisit that after we've seen Memento. Now, last week, we went through our whole Nolan filmography ranking as it currently stands. Memento, after this watch... Still my number one, Christopher Nolan. Again, we're only two films into the Ur review, so we'll see if that does change as we move ahead here. Any changes for you with your list? Yeah, the way I'm going to do this is, because I have thought about it, I'm going to like start from scratch. So basically, right now, uh, it's a boring way, because we've only had two films. I but like I have it. Memento, I have Memento number one, and I have Following two. And so when I get to Insomnia, I'm I'm going to see where, where it uh, fits compared to those two. If only it was that easy. We'll just keep it two films, and yes, I know where Memento <laughs> ranks and where Following ranks. 
I, I like a, a plan. I like an organized path. I like a procedure, Adam, of and that's mine. Of course you do, Lenny. I mean, Josh. We'll get to <laughs> following here in a few weeks. And Josh, that is our show. It is. If you want to share your memento theories with us, find us on Facebook or Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And of course, you can always send thoughts to feedback at Filmspotting.net. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, in the show archives, we have reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. If you want to order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to get our weekly Film Spotting newsletter written by Sam Van Halgren, you can sign up at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend on digital, Tiger Tail is on Netflix this weekend. It's the directing debut of Alan Yang, a writer on Parks and Rec and Masters of None. Next week here on the show, we will get to that third film in our Betty Davis marathon, 1939's Dark Victory. And we're going to share the top five things we're streaming during quarantine. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Waxahachie. It comes from the new album, St. Cloud. More information is at Waxahachie.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So for a little bit of spoiler talk about Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, I wanted to talk to you, Josh, about an element of the film that we didn't really get to in our review proper, and it's something that Ben brought up in his comments to us. He writes... Piecing the scenes of the father together, such as the disturbing sexual stimulation of the dog, with Autumn's confession in the abortion clinic, I picked up the implication that Autumn's father may have been the one who raped her. I'm glad this remains a mystery in the film, because it may have been too horrifying for me otherwise, wondering if you all have the same reading of the father. So that's just it, Josh. I was wondering if you two, I almost slacked this to you, and then figured I would just save it, and then saw Ben's email as well, so knew we had to get into it. Is that also your reading? Do you think it's being directly suggested that, in this case, the abortion she's having, she does say it's only one partner, and she certainly does in that questionnaire allude to or directly respond that she is sometimes forced or there has been violent acts. Do you believe that it is her father who is the father? And if so, do you approve of, I suppose, the way that Hitman does depict that relationship in the film? Uh, you know, it, it's certainly in the awful realm of possibility. I'll say that, um, considering the information that we're given, but I don't think it's, it's necessarily a sure thing that we can assume that. I was a little disappointed. This is one of the areas that did um, distinguish the movie from Beach Rats for me. The depiction of her home life is not as full or rich as what we get with uh, in Beach Rats, where the mother there, single mother played by Kate Hodge, just comes into much fuller, richer view than what we get of the parents here. Some of it is because of time. You know, we only see Autumn's 
family at the beginning in that first hour or so. Now, there's also, I think I saw someone reference online somewhere that this was actually a, a stepfather, or maybe her mother hasn't even remarried. And I'm looking at the credits now. Um, he's credited Ryan Eagold is the actor, and the character's name is Ted, whereas Sharon Van Netten plays the character who's named Mother. Mm-hmm. So I, I do wonder if he's a boyfriend or a stepfather, um, you know, which... It, is maybe it is maybe it isn't more of a clue to to that question you're asking certainly there are you know i think it was rough to me because they have the family dinner after the first scene of the movie which is like a talent show a high school talent show where she performs and it just didn't the father was just kind of a a basic ass you know, he wasn't very layered in terms of um, what we're to make of him. I think that's why you you and I and, and Ben are maybe a little confused because it wasn't really as richly drawn, even though he's a supporting character um, of, a, of a character or given a performance. I wasn't clear his relationship to her. And he just kind of dismisses her in an overly callous, cruel way that, that didn't strike as very natural. So he's certainly meant to be a problematic figure in the film. Uh, I will agree with... With you there. Um, I don't know if we can pinpoint exactly his part in Autumn's situation, though. Yeah, I think the stepfather reading probably does make a lot of sense. And it does mean just in terms of what's actually transpiring on screen that what we're watching is her not seeking an abortion for an incestuous relationship, not as explicitly incestuous, obviously. It's not her own biological father who is responsible for this, but that doesn't necessarily change anything either about what we are watching unfold. Certainly, Hitman isn't really trying to pose those types of questions or get into the ramifications of or the variations on when a procedure like this might be allowed or not allowed, when it's okay. The movie isn't really about pushing those types of buttons or provoking those types of questions at all. And I appreciate that. Like Ben, I think I ultimately do like that that's a mystery and that the movie doesn't go down that path. At the same time, as Ben said, it is so horrifying to consider that by even introducing it as a possibility and then just letting that linger. And also, when you talk about, I use the word hopelessness a couple of times during our review. You think about her having to return home to that scenario, if that's the case. That leaves such a curtain of dread hanging over the entire film that did leave me uneasy in the way it should. It also left me uneasy in a way I'm not sure I needed to feel. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I don't think you're left with this film thinking things are going to be A-OK, hunky-dory for Autumn no. moving forward. I don't think there's any way to come out of this movie feeling like that. And and I agree. I think it's what I like about that interview scene is that when she gives those answers, when she says sometimes or rarely, the counselor leaves it at that because it's not an interrogation to name and specify her past quote-unquote sins. This is for them to gather health information and also to help Autumn process what she's been through. And so the emphasis again in that scene is on listening. Um, And what we bring... uh, what we come away with is just an understanding of of how fraught her experience of sexuality has been mm-hmm. and how little of it, by her answers, we understand how little of it has been um, out of her 
you know, has been in her control. She hasn't been able to control much of it. And so I think that is what we're supposed to come away from that scene with rather than any um, details or answers as to what exactly she's been through. I don't Mm. think this movie needs that. I don't think we need that either for it to work as powerfully as it does. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.